Pee. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our sh- show Professor Professor Emeritus Michael Clare. He is Professor of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. He is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. He is a prolific author on issues of peace and war and energy and international relations, and we welcome him back to the show, particularly today when there is an enormous military operation being conducted by Russia in Ukraine, apparently in retaliation for the Ukrainians having blown up a piece of the bridge, the very large, enormously long bridge. I never realized it was a bridge in the world that was this long that connects Crimea to Russia. Michael Clare, I'd appreciate your perspective on what is happening, why it's happening, and uh, what you can tell us about what you think will come next. But let's start with what's happening today and why it's happening. So o- over the weekend, uh, apparently Ukrainian special forces, I mean, they haven't admitted this, but apparently Ukrainian special forces managed to blow up a section of the Kerch Strait Bridge connecting Crimea to Russia, as you said. And this has many implications. Uh, The bridge is an important logistical link for for, uh, Russia to supply its forces in Crimea and in the southern part of Ukraine. So any any damage to the logistical flow is, is significant from a military perspective. But it's also terribly important from a symbolic perspective as the one link, the only link between Russia proper and Crimea, which, which Russia now claims is part of its territory. Uh, so if they have to go back to using ferries, which is what they're doing, it, it sort of undermines the, the, the notion of that close link between the two territories. But more than anything else, it is an affront, affiliation for Vladimir Putin, because he uh, championed Russia's seizure of Crimea in 2014, and he championed the building of the bridge to cement the link between Crimea and, and Russia. So the fact that it was blown up is a, an insult to Putin, especially when it came a day after his 70th birthday, and shows that his claims of grandeur of, you know, of Mother Russia uh, taking over Ukraine and, and facing the West is, is pretty fragile. Uh, and so naturally, he's going to snap back. Well, I want to ask you about that in just one minute. First, was the military operation, the blowing up, uh, it seems apparently there was a truck loaded with explosives. It uh, blew up at the time when there were uh, the convoy of uh, uh, petroleum products uh, being uh, on the other side or at least near next to the bomb, and it, it was quite the conflagration. That said, it took out a section or two of a very long bridge, and the reports have been that while Russia is in fact resorting to ferries at this time, that some of the lanes of the bridge are actually still functioning, uh, and that it probably won't take all that long for Russia to repair those two sections that were obviously seriously damaged. So I'm wondering if it made sense as a military matter and whether uh, the potential uh, pushback from Russia in terms of military operations, whether it was worth the cost. So, so you know, you have to weigh these factors. Um, my impression is that, that 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 if you can, if you understand that Russian forces in southern Ukraine, in Kherson, in particular, in Zaporizhia, the two provinces in the south that Putin claimed. When, when he, he made the announcement that Russia had now has now uh, annexed these these uh, four provinces, the two of them in the south are under heavy attack from Ukrainian forces, especially around the city of Kherson. 
So they need all the reinforcements, all the supplies, ammunition, oil that they can get. So even if you can interrupt some percentage of those supplies, you, you, you've hurt uh, the Russian ability there. And it appears that uh, they've opened the bridge to car traffic, but not to heavy truck traffic, you know, the kind that would carry heavy military equipment. So they have done some logistical damage. But far more important than that, I think, is the statement that uh, the Ukrainians are making that uh, they're saying to Mr. Putin and to Russia in general, Crimea is not yours. Uh, we're showing you that we can destroy the links to Russia and that Crimea is ours and will be ours in time. Certainly not where Putin thought this war was going to be when he launched it over half a year ago. What is his response so far to this uh, military operation on the bridge? And what do you expect to happen? Well, let's, let's just stop there for a minute. What has been his response so far? And is this the expected response? Uh, his response is what he's been under pressure to do, which is to attack the infrastructure in Ukraine. Uh, infrastructure meaning energy, uh, energy supplies, uh, en energy stations, power stations, the power grid, uh, but also civilian facilities in general, anything that supports the general population. I mean, the point is to make life miserable and deadly for Ukrainian civilians to undermine their, their, the home front support for the war and to destroy the Ukrainian economy, you know, to grind down Ukraine's ability to sustain the fight and raise the costs of, of continuing the war. And, uh, you know, and, and if, you, if he keeps up the kind of attacks he mounted today, uh, multiple cruise missiles launched at power facilities, um, air attacks, if he could sustain that, which, which I, I think is questionable, but he, he can impose a very heavy price on the Ukrainians. Uh, he's been under immense pressure from ultra-nationalists in Russia to do more of this. And so I, I think we'll see uh, days of this kind of attack on civilian infrastructure in, in the days to come. Is there any military protection that the Ukrainians can utilize to defend against those cruise missiles? I think it would require what they're asking for is an ability to fire missiles into Russia itself, something that uh, our president, Mr. Biden, has so far denied. Uh, and I, I think, you know, we could have a discussion about that. Uh, I think that's the correct thing to do because I think uh, heavy uh, Ukrainian missile strikes into Russian territory itself, air bases and missile bases, uh, could lead to further escalation of the war from a Ukraine-Russia war to a NATO-Russia war. And from there, you know, there are no limits. Uh, so uh, you have that consideration. Uh, but uh, the U.S. is supplying Ukraine with better um, uh, air ra radar systems to to be able to uh, better defend against uh, air attack, air and missile attack, and that will make a difference. You talked about Russia trying to essentially make Ukraine pay such a high price that it will undermine support for the war in Ukraine. Do you have any sense that that tactic from Russia will actually work, or is it apt to further uh, intensify the resolve of Ukrainians to defend their homeland? You know, at, Bill, at this point, it, it seems uh, th that, that Ukraine is pretty united to continue the fighting. You know, ask me this 30 days, 60 days from now, 
when winter sets in and uh, there's no heating in, in Ukraine's major cities and the picture may look different. I, I can't speak to that. At this point, I don't think there's any doubt that the Ukraine's, Ukrainians are united in, in uh, wanting to push uh, the Russians out of their territory. I'm interested in what you just said about the ultra-nationalists in Russia and the military hawks pushing Putin to be even more, well, Putin-esque than he is. Um, and I'm wondering if you could say a few more words about that aspect of Russian uh politics and military, because I think many of us think, well, Putin is leading the fight, but you're saying he's really being pushed to escalate. I'd appreciate some more insight into that. Yes, this is very interesting. Uh, 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 you know, most of the Russian population until now uh, seems to have been pro-war, but passive. Uh, you know, they were happy to go about their lives and wave the Russian flag and cheer on the troops as long as it didn't affect their lives. There has been, however, a, a part of the population that is very uh, ultra-nationalistic, that supports the notion that, that Mother Russia includes the former territories of the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire, and that Putin should carry out his original plans to, quote, denazify, unquote, Ukraine and absorb all of Ukraine into Russian territory. Uh, and the, these people um, have, a, have a certain amount of, of, of uh, backing in, in Russia. They command the airwaves to a certain extent. They're very popular on, t on state TV and radio. And up until now, they've been, you know, rah-rah behind Putin. And now uh, some, uh, some element of this, uh, of this constituency, the ultranationalistic constituency, is turning on Putin because they feel that he's too timid that he's not carrying out the war with sufficient savagery and brutality and, and strength. Um, they're, they're actually, they're, they're more critical of the Russian military high command, the professional military, than Putin himself, uh, possibly because they're afraid to, to denounce Putin personally. But the, the message is that, that Putin and his generals are doing a rotten job of carrying out the war uh, and that he needs to step up. How influential this crowd is, is hard for outsiders to gauge, uh, but it does indicate that there is um, unrest, not, that there's an unrest in Russia, not just among those who are critical of the war and are leaving the country, but there's unrest among the right wing in Russia, uh, dissatisfaction with, with what's going on. So whether that poses some sort of threat to Putin's rule or not, I can't say. But the anti-war crowd is, has been silenced. They have no outlet. So those voices are not heard in Russia. But this pro-war crowd does have a voice, and the fact that they're able to criticize Putin is significant. Among other things, because Putin hasn't shut them off from uh, social media in Russia. We are speaking with Michael Clare. He is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College and defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. When we come back, I have this question for you, Professor Clare. What are the odds that Putin's going to use a nuke in this war. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 
1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Co-ops build economic power. Members own a co-op democratically, and with worker co-ops, the workers own it, creating dignified jobs rooted in the community. October is Co-op Month. Hive Makerspace, a worker-owned community workshop. PV Squared, 20 years of heart and solar. Flatiron Co-op, an inclusive coffee house serving the community in Bellows Falls, Vermont. Brought to you by the Valley Alliance of Worker Co-ops. Together, we're working for a co-op economy. Valleyworker.coop. A Western Mass, it's sports season again in New England. Favorite sports like football, hockey, and basketball. Yep, sports season is here, and it's not just about the pros. There's Pop Warner, travel basketball, and peewee hockey, plus all the high school and college teams getting back on the field, court, or ice. Yet, despite all the protective gear that athletes use, well, injuries happen. And in Western Mass, the bona fide experts in hands and wrists, hips and knees, shoulders, feet and ankles, ACLs, and the spine are the doctors and their teams at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. New England Orthopedic Surgeons are the only subspecialized comprehensive orthopedic surgical practice in Western Mass, with locations in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Ludlow, and Springfield, plus an urgent care walk-in center. So if you're looking for the best orthopedic care in Western Mass, go online to neortho.com and make an appointment online, or give them a call. When it comes to orthopedic care, you want the bona fide experts. That's neortho.com. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. CNA is like a family you can trust that gives you hope and confidence that there is always support for various situations. They help dreams come true. Do you want to be a part of Center for New Americans? Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. Center for New Americans, with offices in Amherst, Northampton, and Greenfield. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus at Hampshire College of Peace and World Security Studies, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, as Monty pointed out to me. I've been a little uh, deficient in my recitation of the facts regarding Professor Clare's work as the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, which he has been doing, for those of you who don't know, has been performing that important role in the discourse of American politics and policy for over 50 years. So congratulations on that, Michael. I'd, li I'd, like, I'd like to uh, ask you the question that is very much on many people's minds today and has been for some days or weeks now, which is the possibility that Vladimir Putin would order the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. What's your perspective on that? Well, he certainly has threatened to do so, kind of um, using code language that suggests as much without, you know, without being precise about it, but he, he's made threats to do so. So we have to take that seriously. Uh, so far, there's no evidence uh, in the public domain that he's moved um, the requisite uh, capabilities in place to mount such attack, and the Department of Defense has has said that uh, whether they have information they may they're not making public, I don't know. But there's been no public indication that Putin has done anything to carry out such threats. I, I think the likelihood is low uh, because I think it would be disadvantageous uh, for Russia if he did. I, I don't think it would, uh, the use of t so called tactical nuclear weapons would, um, would improve the battlefield uh, situation for Russian troops, which is the, the point of using them. 
I don't I don't think it would give them any any advantage and it's un, you know you can't be sure when you use such weapons w whether they would blow back the radiation would blow back into your own side uh, so it's very risky to to use them it, and if you use them against cities like Kiev uh, or other cities and killed huge numbers of civilians, uh, Russia would be a pariah state and the countries that currently are keeping the the country alive by purchasing its oil, I, I'm sure they would be forced to, do, to stop uh, any lifelines of support. Even China would be forced to do that. Uh, so the consequences for Russia would be catastrophic. So I, I don't see any advantages that would come from using nuclear weapons. I I, I think that he 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 is doing what what um, what he's said he was going to do, which is to rain havoc and death and destruction on Ukraine Ukraine's infrastructure and its civilian population. And I think you'll see a lot more of that in the days ahead. And there will be many civilian casualties and, and a great devastation. And I, I, I think that's criminal and terrible, but I, I don't think he'll use nuclear weapons. He'll use what are called conventional weapons? Is that the right term? And if so, what do we mean by conventional weapons? I want, then I want to go back in a minute to what you mean by that phrase, tactical nuclear weapons. But what do we mean by conventional weapons in, in this war? They're, they're, they're not nuclear. But anything else? No, they're just, it, it just means you could, you could use conventional and non-nuclear interchangeably. Okay. Now, there are some weapons he's using that are non-nuclear that have nuclear-like um, characteristics. Now, I, my brain cannot conjure up the term for one of these that, that um, cre explodes and creates a fireball inside uh, apartment buildings. Um, you know that it's like, like has the effect of a, a miniature nuclear weapon, and there's a, a special term for these weapons that he's using. But they don't have uh, radioactivity. No, there's no radioactivity. Okay. Yeah. Well, l let me ask you this because your analysis of why Putin will not use nuclear weapons, uh, will not use these battlefield nuclear weapons, uh, is premised on the idea the assumption that Putin is a rational actor, that he evaluates the pros and cons and comes to the conclusion that use of nuclear weapons in the battlefield, much less on in the cities of Ukraine, uh, is not to his advantage. And that assumes that he is, in fact, a rational actor. And there, of course, were many reports or uh, guesses at the beginning of this conflict that uh, COVID had so isolated Putin that he was no longer really rational in his decision-making process. And I'm wondering what your perspective is about that topic. Uh, you know, first of all, I, I've been studying Putin and Russia for a long time. Uh, and from, from the perspective of my research on resource competition and and the role that energy plays in world politics and you know putin is at the pinnacle of what's essentially a oil state an energy state and and that derives its power and wealth from the production and sale of energy and it's made him and his coterie of of lieutenants and allies and oligarchs, extremely wealthy and, and, and you know, rich and privileged within Russia. And I think he's rational in the extent that he wishes to preserve that wealth for himself and his pals and his insiders. I don't think that he wants to sacrifice, risk losing that, that wealth entirely. Uh, so I think he's acting to preserve that. 
So, I mean, I think he's rational in the way that a mafia don is rational. The, a successful mafia don, you know, they know that they, they're fighting against a, a implacable enemy and, and sometimes they're going to lose. But, but you know, they, they operate rationally within the criminal space. And if you think of it that way, uh, I think that's, that, that explains Vladimir Putin, which, which is why I think he's coming under attack from these ultranationalists in Russia who are not part of the oil wealth. They're not part of, they're not in the pinnacle of power and wealth in Russia. Um, and they don't, and they're critical of him because he's more interested in, you know, in preserving the structure of, of wealth around him and the oligarchs more than he is interested in, in, um, in taking Ukraine at any cost, at any cost. He's not willing to sacrifice uh, Russia for, for, for glory, you know, for, for the motherlands, for the uh, even at, at, at the risk of its destruction. Well, I'd, I'd like to spend another couple minutes, because that's all we have, on, on this question. You used the phrase tactical nuclear weapons and said mm -hmm. you did not believe that Putin would use them. What does that phrase mean? When It's used in the media a lot, but I'm not sure I really understand okay. it. Yeah, well, this goes back to the Cold War when the U.S. and the Soviet Union had ICBMs aimed at each other's homelands. Those are called strategic nuclear weapons. Intercontinental, weapons, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Ballistic missiles, any weapons aimed at the homeland of your adversary. But there was assumed to be back in the day that if a war broke out in Europe between the armies of NATO and the Warsaw Pact, that one side or the other might use battle, so-called battlefield nuclear weapons to destroy a tank formation or an air base. So these would be smaller nuclear weapons with, with intended for battlefield use, and they were called tactical nuclear weapons. So by and large, they are of smaller, um, uh, smaller uh, tonnage. Uh, they, you measure bombs in, in, ton, in equivalent tons of TNT. Uh, and the, the Hiroshima bomb, I think, was in the vicinity of 15,000 tons of TNT, something like that. I'm sorry if I'm memory is wrong about this, but these would be smaller than that, putting aside the radiation effects. Uh, and the, 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 the um, uh, strategic nuclear weapons, the ones carried on ICBMs, some of them are in the megatons, you know, millions of tons of TNT equivalent or hundreds of thousands of tons equivalent. So we're talking about weapons that would be maybe 5,000 tons equivalent of TNT. If Putin were to use one or 10 or however many he might uh, envision of these battlefield nuclear <clears throat> weapons, if he were to deploy them, uh, to utilize them, would that cross this line of, that would make Russia an international pariah? Does one use of one nuclear weapon do that? I think so, um, uh, especially if there's a large civilian casualties involved or a lot of uh, radiation caused by that. I think it would be very hard for China. Uh, China prides itself as being essentially anti-nuke in the international community as, you know, wants to be an alternative to the, to the U.S. in world affairs as a leader of, a, of, the, of the developing world, of the global south, of a rational pro-development force in the world. It, it, I can't see how the Chinese leadership could have any ties with a country that uses nuclear weapons against civilians. So, uh, I, I think that would force, and certainly India couldn't do that. 
Um, so I, I think it would force China and, and India to break with, with Putin, as well as all the other countries um, that have been neutral, like South Africa and Brazil and Turkey and numerous other countries that have not joined in the sanctions against Russia. All of them would have to do that. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, defense correspondent, longtime defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. Thank you so much for being with us, Michael. Really appreciate it. Sure thing. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Holyoke City Councilor Wilmer Puelamota, who's facing felony charges in Rhode Island, is back in court for a pretrial conference today. Puelamota has been charged with child pornography, as well as felony obstruction and forgery charges. He was released on $20,000 bail on August 10th. He returned to city council last week after a judge ruled that the council cannot dismiss him until he's convicted of a crime. A woman from Westfield has been indicted by a federal grand jury in connection with a hoax bomb threat made against Boston Children's Hospital. Catherine Levy was indicted on multiple charges for the bomb threat that happened on August 30th. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, the bomb threat caused the Boston Children's Hospital to lock down and a bomb squad to search the area. Levy will appear in federal court at a later date. Police are investigating after a car versus bicycle crash last night. The accident happened just after 6.30 on East Hampton Road in Northampton. The male bicyclist was transported to Cooley Dickinson Hospital. The car's driver stayed on scene and was cooperative with police. No word yet on what caused the accident. And there's another virus that's spreading this fall. Norovirus is a stomach bug that's highly contagious and painful. The virus can be serious and anyone can get it. Norovirus is the most common cause of intestinal issues in the U.S. The CDC recommends washing your hands frequently, cooking seafood thoroughly, cleaning and disinfecting contaminated surfaces, and washing clothes thoroughly. There are no vaccines and no drugs to treat norovirus. For today, partly sunny, chance for a few passing sprinkles this afternoon, highs 62 to 66. Tonight, mostly clear, overnight lows 38 to 42. And the for Tuesday, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-60s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden indultó a miles de estadounidenses condenados por posesión simple de marihuana según la ley federal, mientras su administración da un paso drástico hacia la despenalización de la droga y aborda las prácticas de acusación que afectan de manera desproporcionada a las personas de color. La medida de Biden también cubre a miles de condenados por el crimen en el Distrito de Colombia. También está pidiendo a los gobernadores que emitan indultos similares para los condenados por delitos estatales relacionados con la marihuana, que reflejan la gran mayoría de los casos de posesión de este tipo. Biden en un comunicado dijo que la medida refleja su posición de que nadie debería estar en la cárcel solo por usar o poseer marihuana. Demasiadas vidas han cambiado debido a nuestro enfoque fallido de la marihuana, agregó. Es hora de que corrijamos estos errores. Según la Casa Blanca, actualmente nadie se encuentra en una prisión federal únicamente por simple posesión de la droga, pero el indulto podría ayudar a miles a superar los obstáculos para alquilar una casa o encontrar un trabajo. El Departamento de Justicia está trabajando para diseñar un proceso para que las personas cubiertas por el indulto de Biden reciban un certificado de indulto que pueden mostrar a posibles empleadores y otras personas según sea necesario. En otras informaciones, el Departamento de Vivienda de Puerto Rico anunció el jueves una extensión del programa de asistencia para la renta tras una nueva propuesta en fondos de 97 millones de dólares. Este programa, que ayuda a los beneficiarios en el pago del alquiler de su vivienda, así como el pago de agua y luz, continuará hasta septiembre de 2023. Más de 70 mil familias se han beneficiado y para ser elegible, los inquilinos deben tener ingresos por debajo del 80% de los ingresos medios del área según establecido por el Departamento de Vivienda y Desarrollo Urbano de Estados Unidos. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. 
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. It's such lovely music and such a nice change of pace from the first couple segments that we spent. Indeed. Really. We welcome back to our show Jane Yolen, the prolific author, the brilliant poet, the extraordinary children's book author, and we are so pleased she can be back with us today and has with her and us uh, her co-reader of an upcoming event. So many things to talk about with you, Jane, but let's start with your upcoming reading. Tell us about that and who you'll be doing with it, doing it with, and the like. So please, share with us. Well, it's a, a book, a poetry book for adults, um, and it's called The Black Dog Poems. Um, and I wrote it with my, here's a little thing, little hint, new husband. Um, <laughs> and congratulations. Congratulations. Um, and we, we had known each other in um, college. We dated for two weeks in college, two months in college. And uh, mostly talked about poetry because that's what we were. He was a poet at Williams College and I was the poet at Smith College. Um, and years later, after we were both um, long widowed uh, from, from uh, long, good marriages, we met again at the Emily Dickinson Museum and uh, um, started our relationship just as COVID blossomed. <laughs> so we ended up writing poems back and forth. Um, as we were, as we were, um, left, uh, in his house for three months. And, and, uh, so there were, t there were three of us in, in this house. There was Peter Tacey, Jane Yolen, and this amazing alpha female poodle, black poodle, uh, named Gracie. And we wrote a lot of poems about Gracie. And Gracie decided I was her new alpha female with her and uh, eventually started sleeping uh, on the floor by my side of the bed instead of the floor on his side of the bed. Um, but I had had a black dog myself when I was a teenager. So mine was a, a lab, but um, I just fell in love with Peter's, Peter's dog and Peter, too. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad <laughs> we got first. I'm, I'm glad we got back to Peter. I, I would like to ask this: You were uh, you knew each other in college? That was some years ago. How much later was it that the two of you began dating years. again? Sixty-three years ago. <laughs> and now, like, and yeah. now you're married. Wow. Well, you know what? We don't exactly look like we used to look. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to let you say hi to Peter. Great, Peter. Hi, thank you so much for being with us. Tell us about the read. Tell us about the book. Uh, Jane seemed to have been, taken a bit of a detour on the uh, dog, but I would like to know more about the book and what the poems are that are in it. And I'd like to know at the reading. So, talk to us, please. Well, the book is it basically wasn't really intended to be a book. Jane just after a while noticed that we we had a book here. And it's uh, my it's my special uh, magical <laughs> thing that I do. And uh, so but these, these were what we were really doing was tracking. Again, we didn't sense it at the time. The uh, uh, middle and late and end of life for this wonderful dog. But also we were amusing ourselves and each other doing something that we had last done in the 1950s, which was bouncing um, lines and ideas and poems back and forth at each other. And uh, so to some degree, even though the dog is now long gone, uh, we still enjoy doing this. And at the reading, we're going to read some other poems that are pairs of poems where I or Jane would write something and the other will respond or cap it. And where we're going to be reading is on the 25th at the Emily Wilson uh, Library in East Hampton. Um, and uh, um, it's sort of open to all, and we hope we, hope we have um, a um, good audience. Uh, we enjoy reading the poems, and, and we... Um, we feel when we reread them 
we feel that that we're um, kind of bringing Gracie back into our into our lives and into the lives of of others. I'd like to know this um, without prying. <clears throat> I hope uh, too much. Uh, you all were writing poetry to each other. How many years ago? And what is the you could clarify that. Say that again, just so my mind can wrap, wrap wrap itself around that fact. And what's what's the same, and what's different all these many decades later? <laughs> uh, the answer is everything and everything. Um, I I think that the we enjoyed each other. We enjoyed each other so much as kind of literary enthusiast companions in the 1950s that we never really bothered thinking about whether or not we were um, in a romantic relationship. Um, What was really extraordinary, much more unusual in our minds back then, was that we were in a relationship where we both loved to read the same things and talk about the same stuff. And, uh, And by the way, meeting at Emily Dickinson's house the museum was um, more or less fated in that one of the, the things that we both discovered early on that we loved was her poetry. And in the 1950s, most of her poems still hadn't been published. So she was brand new on the scene in a lot of ways, and most of the poetry of hers that had appeared in anthologies or other things that you read in college had been heavily revised and edited uh, by people who thought they knew better than she did. And uh, we sort of, uh, uh, we liked her individuality and her snarkiness. And uh, and I think that that was one of the reasons that we decided to get together and kind of brief each other about our li- lives and at uh, Emily's house. We had no idea we were building anything more than a lunch date relationship. Um, <laughs> well, in for a dime, in for a dollar. Did you kind of know this was love at second sight? No. It took a couple of weeks. It took a couple of weeks. I mean, I fell for the dog immediately. <laughs> so, by COVID. And we were at my house waiting to get on an Amtrak train for Boston and then on a plane to Europe uh, when all of a sudden everything began to shut down. And so we were stuck here in Mystic, where I live, um, for a long time. And it turned out that we'd probably either become really much closer friends or we wouldn't be able to stand each other much longer and happily, it worked out the good way. Oh, it's a, rom- a romance with COVID, or because of COVID. That's just so... Well, well uh, it was romance aided by COVID. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At our age, as Peter says, you can take what you get. <laughs> <laughs> what we're going to do is take a quick break. We'll be back with Peter Tacey and Jane Yolen, who is the author of some over 400 books, by the way. Uh, Peter and Jane have a upcoming reading at the Emily Wilson Library in East Hampton. We'll be back more with Peter and Jane, right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This week's Shop Tuesday is Simple Gifts Farm Store. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Simple Gifts releases gift certificates for their farm store in North Amherst. Get organic produce, pasture-raised meat, free-range eggs, local dairy, and more at Simple Gifts Farm Store in North Amherst. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Simple Gifts Farm in North Amherst, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. 
Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Co-ops build economic power. A co-op is a trusted and proven way to strengthen the local economy. The members own it, or the workers own it. October is Co-op Month. Check out our local co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops, and farmer co-ops. With over 8,000 members, the Brattleboro Food Co-op works hard to make a difference in the community and helps assist local organizations to improve the lives of our neighbors. To learn more, visit brattleborofoodcoop.coop. It's October 2022, and that means it's Kringle Candle's 12th anniversary. Stop by Kringle Candle on South Street in Bernardston for their 12th anniversary sales event this Friday through Monday. Kringle Candle is open from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. All large and medium candle jars, Halloween candles, and fall decor items are on sale. Shop the new Kringle Holiday Fragrances just released. Visit the Gourmet Shop and enjoy much more. For more information, go to KringleCandle.com. Today, I'm convening this conference because I believe we can use these advances to do even more to make America stronger and a healthier nation, to achieve ambitious goals and hunger in this country by the year 2030. This is a big deal. The President of the United States just announced to the world that ending hunger and promoting better nutrition in this country is a national priority. I think that's a good plan, and I think we can do it. Meanwhile, our neighbors have to eat today. The Food Bank of Western Mass is there for the over 100,000 neighbors who rely on emergency food each month. And if you want to help support the Food Bank of Western Mass, you can join the March for the Food Bank 13 Thanksgiving week. The federal government is making moves when it comes to fighting hunger, and the Food Bank itself is making moves. From Hatfield to Chicopee, you can move with us locally as we march from Springfield to Northampton on day one, and Northampton to Greenfield on day two. March yourself, start a team, virtually march. Get involved. Make some moves. Monty's March 13, making moves. Monday and Tuesday, November 21st and 22nd. Sign up now at Monty's March. You ain't nothing but a This is Bill Newman, WHMP. <laughs> we continue our conversation with Jane Yolen and Peter Tacey. They have a reading together at the Emily Williston Library in East Hampton coming up in just a few, uh, very shortly. And I would love to hear... This is, they're going to be reading from their new joint collection. Uh, what's the title of the collection, Jane? The title of the collection is The Black Dog Poems. And the, the, the funny thing about it was after we decided it, we had enough poems for a book, we couldn't remember who had written each, each poem, and we had to go back and piece it together. Okay. Well, I would like to hear, I'm sure our listeners would like to hear a bit of what this uh, book and the collection sounds like. Could you read one of yours, and perhaps Peter could read one of his as well? Absolutely. Um, And and I like the introduction of nothing but a hound dog. Uh, Mine is called A Bone for the Birthday Dog. I have no bone to pick with you, dog. You bring joy and health. I am not bone tired of your pictures. They start my day with a smile. I am not boning up on dog anatomy, just counting your tail wags on the Internet. You tickle my humorous bone which means my tear ducts are bone dry. So here's a virtual bone for you from your friend and bone or boon companion (laughs) on a couple of road trips around your town. Bone appetit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Here's the lesson of a wet dog. Gracie was a water breed. Oh, I knew it because I'd read the poodle screed. She knew it too, but it was written in her genes, which tell their stories in neural micro scenes, the basis of all the histories a dog can know and tell. Gracie's genes led her to water on every walk or stroll we'd take. Sooner or later, I'd hear a splash and know an erst poodle was on the scene. My princess dog was letting go, so a poodle hunt might now be seen. 
Humans, too, have inmost drives. Dogs teach of these as when, <laughs> as when a muddy, dripping beast arrives and is welcomed back with us again. So those are two. Those are humorous ones, but we've also got some very tender ones, too, because the book goes all the way um, to and through uh, the Gracie's death. Um, and and we were there sitting with her at the very end, uh, holding her in, at the at the vets. And anyone who has ever owned a dog knows that you're probably going to outlive them. And and it's it's a, uh, an interesting relationship. You know something the dog doesn't know, um, and and uh, you have to be prepared for it, and you have to be brave. And you have to be able to cope with, with that, I think, knowing that it's there, but that they're loyal to you and your loyalty to them is all that matters. I, I would be interested to know that the, the, well, the, the result, the outcome, I'm not quite sure what the word is, but the experience of both uh, living through this death of the dog and living through it together, whether you learn something. I mean, you all have been around for a while, and I'm wondering whether you learned something in this experience of being with, the, experiencing this death and experiencing it together that was new or novel or taught you something you didn't expect. Let's start with you, Jane, then we'll go to you, Peter. Um, it's not that you don't expect it. You do, and you put that away. You don't think about it. Um, the, a dog's life, a big dog like uh, like Gracie was, um, life is is at most what eighteen years. She yeah, she lived to thirteen. She lived to thirteen. Um, so for and and Peter is eighty five and I'm eighty three. So I've buried a, a dog before. You've buried several dogs before Gracie. Um, but this was the first and only dog. That we shared, and we're too old now to have another dog. You can't, you you can't be in a situation where the dog is going to outlive you. So it's it's one of those things. You know, it's the animal is lent to you. Um, that's given. Going into it, that's given, and along the way, you forget for a while. Um, uh, along the way, you you don't um, you don't think about it until suddenly it's on you. We're going to have I mean, to we're going to have to leave it there, Jane. I'm sorry, yep. but we look forward yep. to your and Peter's reading again, uh, October 25th, 6:30 at the Emily Williston Memorial Library in East Hampton. Thank you both so very much. Congratulations on the book and congratulations on your marriage, 83 <laughs> and 85 year olds. Goodness gracious, <laughs> really. Thank you so very much. Thank you, too, Bill. Thank you, Monty. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com, and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP, Your message at whmp.com. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.